Amigos and amigas, I'm your host DJ, along with the co-creator, co-conspirator, executive producer, okay, the money man himself in fun, entertaining, educational, interesting UFO, positive UFO talk for the community, money, Nathan, what's up brother? Wow, uh, greetings everybody, happy Thursday, man, it's good, it's a good night for a podcast, especially with who the guest is. We're talking about somebody, brother. I don't know much about him, but I've heard he's interesting. So, very <laughs> fair. <laughs> oh man, this is a story in itself, and hopefully they'll they'll detail that a little bit uh, later. Uh, also, also with us is the Keystone, the heart and soul, the original gangster, somebody we love very much. A study of UAPs, Debs. How you doing, home girl? I'm ready to get liminal. <laughs> Ooh, that was good. Yeah, there's going to be, as we stated in our private chat, there'll be multiple polysyllabic words used tonight. Meredith, you know, I know you're going to jump in there as well. Uh, before we get to you, our homegirl from out in Idaho, where she's seeing oh, apparently Bigfoot <laughs> structures in the woods. Miss Primetime, Leah Prime. Thank you, DJ. Yes, thank you. Thank you. How's it going, homegirl? Uh, just another day in paradise. Thank you. Literally, literally. Um, also, um, so we decided to bring on this uh, special guest host. We wanted to get her in on an episode. I pitched this one to her. Um, she is an amazing interviewer and intellect. Uh, she is the host of a uh, podcast called Meredith For Real. Um, she also does a bunch of stuff down there. She's, uh, you know, in Pensacola, people want to have her broadcast and speak about a bunch of stuff. So Meredith for real, what's up, homie? What's <laughs> up? I'm so happy to be here. Happy, uh, happy solstice too. A couple days late. One yeah, day. Not- <laughs> Namaste. <laughs> just in the beginning, like Meredith was so funny, man. She's just, <sighs> yeah, I- I'll tell you what, man. And I'll be on with her on Monday. We're going to record a show. Oh, I'm so, super excited about yeah, that. I'm, I'm serious. So man. excited. Take off my glasses. <laughs> and, and then you have to push up your intellectual invisible glasses yes. in the center. Anytime yes. you're about to say something very scholastic. I will. I'll do that. I'll do. And also like Anjali, you know, she does. A, <clears throat> she does the throat clear every time she's about to get into it. So uh, with, with I had that, a college professor that said, anytime I clear my throat, that means you should take notes. So that's probably a good move. <laughs> uh, Right, right. The, the, the old foot stomp, as we used to say in the Air Force. Um, but without further ado, let's introduce uh, our special guest. Uh, this man uh, came on the show and subsequently became uh, Nathan's brother. And uh, we now have to uh, we have to share Nathan between a bunch of us. What are you going to do? He's a wanted man. Uh, he is the communications director of the John E. Mack Institute, a graduate of the Monroe Institute's Gateway Program. This man is a, a, a desired and wanted speaker on the uh, UFO conference circuit uh, because of his incredible thoughts and his, his mind, which which drew all of us to him, frankly. Um, 
he is um, he's not only the host of one, but two celebrated podcasts, one being the point of convergence, which is how uh, Nathan said, we got to get this guy on during our first show meeting. <laughs> and uh, the one that he and Nathan uh, started together, which is called uh, Liminal Frames. He is the king of ontology, ufology, phenomenology, and his favorite word, whatnot. So party people, put those hands together for Darren. Exo Academian King! Yeah! <laughs> Woo! Exo, I'll, I'll baby! Do that introduction. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. I'd like a recording afterwards. Thank you. Yes, sir. I think sir. you should we... make it your new ringtone on your Absolutely. phone. Every time your phone rings, you just hear DJ's voice pumping you up. That's right. That's right. We're going to get it to you, brother. Uh, and before we go any further, you know, I pitched this to Nathan the other day about uh, a, a North Carolina ufology keg party. At your cabin, which would include yourself, obviously Nathan, uh, Micah Hanks, who will probably bring some sort of a moonshine, uh, and Diana, Dr. Diana Pasolka. Like, why shouldn't this keg party happen? Maybe even Christopher Bledsoe. And I, right? The TE5 as well, I'm guessing. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah I mean, of course. This, this should happen. Just keep Nathan. Nathan's going to have that little thing. He's going to be trying to get <laughs> It, it is Appalachia, so we have some moonshine too, probably. So just a heads now, up. now based on DJ's interest, he should keep his eye on the window back there, just in case Sasquatch makes its way across the window. Yeah, you know? exactly. Darren, he's gonna. You are gonna have a sighting. I mean, this is gonna right. happen. Right. Have you oh, any sure. doubt? I've not seen it yet. No, I'm sorry. Lots of squirrels, lots of deer. Uh, not any Sasquatch yet. Uh, just try putting out some kibbles of dog food. It would. This will happen. But anyway. <laughs> Um, okay. <laughs> um, the, the first question I have for you, um, Darren, and, and I don't want you to feel any pressure with this question, but mm -hmm. resting on the results of your answer could be conferral of some sort of a honorary PhD from Dr. Jeff Kripal. So let me just, you know, put that frame up there. Um, mm -hmm. What would you say are your favorite potato chips? Are we talking about sea salt are we talking about a seasoned potato chip um and the and and i won't i won't codify it any further and see what what your answer is and, and if it marries up with dr kripal and some of the other phd's answers yeah i should have checked with jeff beforehand i had no idea this was gonna be the question <laughs> I, I, was, I put a barbecue at number one with uh, sour cream and onion being a close second wow okay all right wow nathan new I data points <laughs> Well, keep track. Uh, okay. um, so, yeah, I, I mean, you would have in order to qualify for the honorary conferral of the Ph.D., you would have to have said polychip, which is where uh, which is where. Both, yep. You're <laughs> uh, you're there. Leah. Uh, what was the other Ph.D. we had on Sean Espion Hargens? Yeah. And Dr. Kripal, both polychip. So um, I'm sorry, Darren, uh, you're going to have to remain at, okay. at this level next time. <laughs> Yeah. So um, anyway, I wanted to ask you, Darren, we're kind of going uh, we're, we're going to try to be relatively brief. We have a lot of people to get to tonight. So I'm going to try to uh, all of us, you know, uh, sort of get to the point with these uh, except for you. And then um, I wanted to ask you, based on uh, what happened with uh, Mr. Grush and the revelations that he came forward with, a lot of which I think we've everyone on here has heard. Uh, through the grapevine at one point or another, most of it, if not all, um, the, the B 
beings that you have that have given you downloads that you're in contact with have you heard anything regarding that uh that revelation if you will since it happened wow that is a penetrating question i feel discombobulated no just kidding um <laughs> I have to use that word at least three times in the interview. Uh, <laughs> Polysyllabic, it's good. It's what I would say is that my, my sense of things is that uh, the timing is not is not uh, unconnected. It's all somehow connected. So the things that are happening in the world, the challenges we're facing as a civilization, the push towards disclosure, uh, the increased activity amongst different groups happening in the world right now, I'd say it's all connected. That's my that's my answer to that question. Okay, that's fine. I mean. Uh, and let, let's pass it over to, without further ado, Money Nathan, take it away. All right. So, Darren, uh, mm. I'm just going to hit you with some. What's your name big, again? Sorry. Uh, yeah. So, I'm Nathan. Um, we're calling okay, all bye. beings. Um, hi, Ethan. How are you doing? Just my first time. Um, all right. I'm giving you, I'm going to put you in the hot seat here because I think this will be a good one. Uh, right. I read a comment online, uh, and you're going to love this. I read a comment online about mm -hmm. you and your show point of convergence and the and the commenter said i really love point of convergence until darren did the ce5 and then he went all woo and then this commenter got turned off so i, I have a three-parter here for you all right one i want your reaction to that but two i want you to kind of what what do you consider woo to be and three why should we be paying attention to the woo Right. So the first question was, what do I think about that question? Right. Yes. Or that comment? Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, my, my commitment is to wherever the data leads, wherever my experience leads, I'm not going to cover something or not cover a certain angle because someone doesn't like it. You're going to end up offending someone somewhere. If you're not offending anyone, you're probably doing it wrong. It's kind of my perspective. My experience in exploring this phenomenon, both in terms of from an academic point of view and looking at all of the historical data, experiential literature, and my own experiences with, with CE5 and the Heist protocols and psychedelics and meditation and everything else have just exposed me to the woo. And once you've gone down that avenue, it becomes impossible to separate the two, I would say. Um, I think anyone who's not seeing woo, as our conventional culture might want to call it, in the phenomenon data is either not looking very deeply or somehow has such a deep bias that they're just sort of excluding it from their perspective. Um, in terms of how I define the woo, see, that's the thing. I don't really think it's woo. I think it's actually part of reality. It's just that we have too narrow a frame, too narrow a liminal frame, you might say. <laughs> uh, what was the last part of the question? Why should we be paying attention to it? Why should we be paying attention? For the reason I just said, because it's in the data. You can't deny it. You can't separate these two out. Going back to Valet um, and John Keel back in the 60s and 70s, they recognized it back then. They began thinking this was just about the extraterrestrial hypothesis, something about space aliens, fairly simple, fairly astronomical, much more complex than that once you look at the data and once you actually explore it on your own. Awesome. Yeah, it, it's funny when you talk about uh, podcast comments. I think Nathan, Nathan should have a look that the in the Apple comments, there are two of them that are basically saying, uh, Nathan, you're great, but you should get rid of that loudmouth DJ. And the <laughs> other one is very similar. It's like, this show would be awesome. Uh, Nathan, you just got to rid yourself of that other guy. <laughs> so, 
I just delete those and move on, man. So thank you, everybody, for those uh, very encouraging comments. Nathan may consider it. You don't know. Um, So anyway, um, Debs, um, please go ahead, ma'am. Okay, so um, there's this term that you use, ontological shock, that has been picked up. Of course, it's not, you know, I know it's not one you coined, but it is one that you use to explain what's going on. And um, as of the Grush drop, essentially, I've seen ripples and shock, even among the members of the UFO community. And a lot of people are saying that they're afraid. So I just wanted to know what you would say to them to help them deal with that shock and that fear? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's a question we'll be facing more and more on a daily basis almost as this takes gets more traction in the mainstream. The ontological shock relates to the fact that it's not just something a little bit beyond what you're expecting to come across. Like, for instance, one time I ran into a, a mountain lion on a mountain trail, not here, but uh, somewhere else in the West. That was shocking, but it wasn't ontologically shocking because it's possible that you're going to meet a mountain lion on a hike. This is something you expect within your ontological framework. But what people encounter with this phenomenon is beings that should not exist. We're not talking just about lights in the sky or even craft in the sky. I know people personally that were, for instance, part of the people that were involved in the research that Dr. Mack did in the 90s. And these people had gray aliens or what they perceived as gray aliens at the end of their bed, suddenly, shockingly, no invitation, doors were locked, doors were closed, windows were closed, and yet they're suddenly at the end of the bed, and they're pressing down on the bed. You feel the weight. You can feel the heat when they're so close to your face. So these are shocking because they are both rooted in physical reality somehow. We don't know how. That's part of the investigation we need to do. And they somehow don't fit with any of our usual understanding of what can be and what kind of beings exist. So that's when you run into ontological shock. In terms of how I would uh, help people dealing with that, I think support and community are essential. So there's there's various different groups you can reach out to now, thankfully, unlike in the 90s, where you can join a bunch of other people who've had similar experiences, find out that you're not crazy, that uh, this is something that does happen. Thankfully, one thing that is coming out of all this in terms of our push towards disclosure is just becoming more normalized all the time. And there's an understanding now, unlike in the 90s, that this is something that can happen. So I would say reach out to community. If people are rejecting what you're saying, are calling you crazy or not being supportive, then find people who can be because they do exist out there. And that's essential to be able to ground the experience. It's a it's a great way to frame it up. It's basically the same reaction people have to big to Bigfoot when they see it. They'll try and explain it away. It's a bear. It's this. Did I really hear that? What could that be? What else can you know, what else has uh, the digits where they have an opposable thumb and can grab a rock and throw it at you? You In the forest, you basically have a human or you have Bigfoot. So, but people will, you know, rationalize it away. Um, go ahead, uh, Miss Primetime. All right. Uh, it's, it's Bigfoot all the way down. Um, <clears throat> so, Darren, one of my favorite things about your work uh, is just how highly interdisciplinary it is. Um, this is the approach I've generally favored as well, coming from... Uh, the perspective of psychedelics, exotic consciousness, spirituality, spiritual emergence, etc. Um, so I'm always very curious about um, when we're considering outside the field of ufology or outside the subject, if you could discuss what thinkers or works you think get it or have influenced your perspective or approach. Sure. Yeah. And I, I do agree with you fully that an interdisciplinary approach is essential. What I did a couple of years ago was when I recognized that the data just didn't fit with our conventional models of reality, 
rather than just trying to cram it in or exclude it and pretend it didn't exist, I went looking in other disciplines, other academic disciplines to see if there was research being done, data that was being discovered that could mm -hmm. support some other avenues we could pursue. And you do find that both in neuroscience and quantum physics, um, in philosophy, for instance. So Bernardo Kastrup is someone that's really influenced me in terms of an um, idealistic approach to a metaphysical sort of undergirding of reality, that reality mm -hmm. is primarily mental and the physical reality we perceive is more like uh, a dream state that we experience, but ultimately everything is mental. And once you allow for that, then suddenly all sorts of things that you wouldn't normally consider part and parcel with what we consider physical reality become possible. Um, Donald Hoffman's work has been another central piece for me because, especially when you tag those two together, because Hoffman has helped point out how what we actually experience in terms of what we think of as reality, what we experience with reality and all of us share in common is actually more like a desktop interface, as I know many of you know, and we are each other are like icons on a screen for each other. So when you suddenly think about beings that are not supposed to exist suddenly showing up in our world, in our bedrooms, think of it less like a being is coming into physical reality, which we know is the base of reality, and rather look at it like someone's just dropped a file remotely onto your computer screen. How did they do that? There's ways we know that you can do that. So they somehow are able to work at the substructure, the substrate of what we perceive as physical reality. And so that really helps to explain what's going on because suddenly you realize that there's a big difference between assuming what we experience is the root of reality versus seeing it as some sort of, not even just a truncated version of the total reality, but a full translation into a shortcutted interface with icons to allow us to survive and perpetuate the species rather than being a pipeline to ultimate truth. So when you recognize that that's actually what we're perceiving, even though we are deluded into thinking it's not, and then you realize that beings that could be thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of years in front of us in terms of their understanding, not just of technology, but of the nature of consciousness and the substrate of reality, then they can perhaps work in the structures below our perceptual framework that we think of as reality. And when they can do that, then it explains why a lot of its seemingly impossible feats can be accomplished. Hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I was thinking about, uh, I, I, my mind went to the block universe for a second, but um, I, I want to introduce you to uh, our uh, special co-host tonight, the host of Meredith For Real and an amazing interviewer herself, uh, Meredith. Uh, this is uh, Darren, uh, Exo Academia. Darren, I am so excited to hear from you. And I love what you were just saying about that reality is more uh, mental than physical. I saw your tweet about that. And in the tweet, you say also that is that is evidenced by psychedelic research. And as someone who just had her first mushroom trip two weeks ago, <laughs> I, <laughs> I am uh, very interested in your interest in psychedelics. And I'm I want to know what you perceive is the connection between psychedelics and the whole alien subject? Excellent question. Congratulations on your first trip, by the way. Thank Maybe you. Many more. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, for instance, just to, to share with the group, I recently had my first DMT trip. I was in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, where it's Mostly completely tough. Legal, you know, so yes. Congratulations. I'm not going to get me in trouble here. Um, I would say that uh, one thing I want to say about that tweet about 
psychedelics and how it actually points to the perhaps the mental substrate of reality versus the physical nature of reality is because when we look at comparing people's experiences on psychedelics versus what we see in a brain scan while they're having those experiences, according to physicalism, if they're having the most mind-blowing experiences of their lives, which many people describe, then we should see a brain that's lit up. We should see a brain that corresponds to that kind of lit up experience. And yet we see the opposite. We see a, a brain that looks remarkably dormant while people are having the most mind-blowing, vibrant, uh, more real than real experiences of their entire lifetime. So that doesn't plumb well in terms of those two. It speaks more to support for, for idealism, for the sense that perhaps there's a consciousness substrate to reality rather than the physical one. Now, in terms of how it relates to the alien beings and, and the phenomenon in general, I think, again, we're talking about ways that we can perceive greater reality beyond our sort of evolutionary, uh, evolutionarily derived interface, right? So I think psychedelics are one way we can get out of that and actually experience more of reality, not less, not alt reality, but actually more of reality. And the same thing happens when people are in contact with the beings. They often feel like it feels more than real, more real than real. They have a sense of it being a broader sense of what really is rather than here. Many people come back from those experiences not really wanting to leave that experience. Similarly, you find the same thing with near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences. So you have all these different contact modalities is what Ray Hernandez called them, where they seem to speak to this common ground in terms of experiencing more of the actual total reality. And furthermore, what's really interesting in terms of a data point is that if you've experienced any one of those, you come back, you're more likely to have the other ones as well than someone from the general population. It's almost like some sort of uh, switch gets flipped on in your consciousness that makes you more able to have those experiences. And sometimes people have permanent changes, like they begin, begin to be precognitive. They have dreams about the future, things like that. And each of those different modalities can trigger that. So somehow it is all related. That's why I called my podcast Point of Convergence, by the way. That was the, the root of the name. And somehow it points to something fundamental about reality being much more than what we usually experience in our waking state sort of consensus reality. And that question, that topic is what I'm most interested in, actually. It's so fascinating to view reality as nonlinear. Like when you're talking about the brain quieting down, my first thought was Dr. Bruce Grayson's research on, mm -hmm. you know, near-death experiences. So I got so excited when you <laughs> mentioned that because yeah. that's what his research saw as well. And it was surprising to him, especially as a very, you know, uh, hard-lined atheist scientist. Um, and uh, yeah, so that that's very, very cool. I, I now see the connection between nonlinear thinking and, you know, being able to conceptualize uh, different dimensional beings and, as you said, realities. That's pretty, pretty cool. Well, if I could just tag on to that, one of my experiences that I've had in various kinds of experiences in meditation, in contact with different kinds of intelligences and on psychedelics is more of a multidimensional kind of awareness where when I'm sort of coming back to this sort of consensus reality, I can feel it narrowing. I can feel like some of the information is like falling by the wayside because there's no way you can channel that much multidimensionality into a narrow linear experience. Uh, so I think that that is something to make note of, again, that speaks to the fact that actual reality is much broader and deeper and more multidimensional than what we usually experience. Um, and I also have found that my experience of time is very different in those kinds of states as well. Sometimes it feels like you know, I had experience recently on the weekend, actually, that felt 
like I was actually getting glimpses of my own future. And it's interesting because there's been research by Dean Radin and some different people that point to this, that sometimes we don't necessarily get a, a view of the future in terms of the global state, but often of our own consciousness, we, we often can. So that's very interesting. For instance, someone might not know what's going to happen 10 days from now, but they might have a precognitive dream where they see themselves looking at a newspaper 10 days from now, and they see a headline that ends up coming true 10 days from now. So yeah. there's something about, again, our experience and us being multidimensional beings, us being much more than we think of as ourselves being here. And sometimes in those alternate states, we can tap into that broader sense of who we are, which I think is also one of the X factors in the phenomenon question in general, because we are much more than we realize here. And I think that's something we'll discover as we learn more about the phenomenon as well. Uh, Darren, in that future you, did you notice if you still had hair or not? I did, as far as I could tell. But but to be honest with not you, I'm seeing through my eyes, so I didn't come across a mirror. So I just assume, to be honest okay. with you. Not that I'm rooting for you not to have hair. I just want to make that clear to the whole right. panel here. Strangely, um, I saw you and you had hair, so I'm not sure what is going on there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Darren, your first experience, though, was really before you sought to, you know, were in knew how to put yourself in a state to have contact, which you, you have, uh, you have that now, but your first contact experience, what you were not seeking contact. I believe it was in a hotel room, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Indeed. And while some people go to hotel rooms for contact, that's not what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> you see, um, people don't know that Darren's funny. That's why we brought him on cab. It's a whole new Avenue people. Him and go. Nathan both, you know, they're sneaky, damn funny. <laughs> um, so, all right, let me, before I, because really that area, I, I could get into some more inquiry, but I want to make sure that everybody gets around. What I would ask you, Darren, is in these messages that you've received, is there a message that you've received that you found very surprising and a message perhaps that you found not surprising at all? Well, I'd say the, the part that was the least surprising of all was only because of my background. So I have a background in Buddhism and non-duality. I went through a long period of sort of identifying as a Christian too, but then moved into non-duality and, and sort of Eastern spirituality, uh, Vedantic kind of traditions. And so non-duality, the connection between everything, everything being an aspect of source, us all being like leaves on the central tree that is the sort of cosmic source or God, if you prefer that word, you can handle the baggage. That was my leaning already, and everything I experienced in those experiences confirmed that to a T, uh, so much so that you experience everything as just more alive and more connected, and you sense how everything we do, every action we take, every thought we have interpenetrates with everything else, and not just in this reality, but in other dimensions as well. And so perceiving that made me much more aware of and wanting to be cognizant of my own actions and my own thoughts because I was aware of the implications being much wider than I originally thought. Um, in terms of what has surprised me, that's a good question. I think, yeah, just how much more real that feels actually in that state. It, it's weird to come across someone who says, well, how do you know that's not just a dream? How do you know that's just some sort of delusion you're having? The people have had those experiences like myself, it feels so real that you just don't question it. And when each of us thinks about what do we really look to in terms of authority of how we define what is most real to us, what we most trust, 
it's some, it's some sort of sense like that. It's some intuitive sense. It's not some logical rationale we come to. It's a, it's a heart sense, something somatic rooted in our bodies. And that was my experience there, which makes me think about this supposed reality very, very differently. And I think of it as a kind of a conditional reality, more like a stage with which consciousness can progress and learn and whatnot. And so I kind of, you know, carry on my affairs that way once I'm here. It's, it's interesting that, it, you know, and I, people will say, well, how, how do you know you can believe David Grush? And I'll say, you know, there's a whole lineup of things of why I confer credibility upon him. And in the same way, people would say, well, how do you know what EXO is saying? You know, these experiences have, I think, because I believe him. <laughs> I confer that belief upon him based on not only your association with Nathan, but just what I know about you and other people. And when I hear you, I believe you. I don't need to see a videotape of it, just like I don't need to see a videotape of back-engineered craft to believe that that's happening. So that when people kind of wonder, like, where does belief come from? It comes from in within you and your interaction with another person. Every one of us have heard experiencers and we're like, yeah, this person is making that up. And we've heard people be like, like Ian Dolly, and you're like, wow, you know, or yourself. Yeah. So anyway, let me pass you it over to the capable hands of your brother, Money Nathan. Yeah, I got a lot of directions I want to go uh, just with the conversation here. But so many interesting avenues to pursue. One that I wanted you to touch on, though, is the human experience. Uh, I think a lot of times when uh, we talk about meditation uh, or altered states, uh, I think some people can conflate that with the diminishing of the other aspects of what it means to be a human being. Uh, and of course, you and I have talked about uh, several times the uh, accounts of other intelligences, uh, you know, kind of lack, at least to our awareness, the sort of cultural depth that you and I are used to in human society. So what is it about being human, in your opinion, that is particularly special? Well, one of the interesting ways I would answer that question is that it partly depends which era of humanity you're speaking of, because I think there's a lot of evidence. I lean more and more towards a significant component of the phenomenon is actually us from the future. So in that sense, you have different eras of human existence in which our relationship with reality, with culture and whatnot changes. And what's interesting is as we progress along that track, we find that actually there's more and more of a felt sense of being connected to a whole. So you get to this point where you have basically this felt sense as being a collective civilization, a collective consciousness as a civilization. I've had experiences where I'm tuning into something about myself that feels connected to that collective consciousness. And yet I still have a sense of I-ness, but it's more like a we-ness in, kind of, in that kind of case, which really makes me, again, think about differently about this reality and think differently about myself as a small self-ego kind of thing. I also think when you have that kind of collective consciousness, then there's so much shared interiority between the different beings in that consciousness that a lot of the culture happens on an interior basis. We don't see so much maybe color and vibrance and flavor and texture and that kind of thing externally when people are on the ships and whatnot, but internally all of that is still there. And because you also have a different relationship with time, you can experience any of those, any and all of those different eras of humanity at the same time. So I think that fundamental nature of humanity is still there but I do think, as you and I have talked about on Liminal Frames, there also is a bit of a trade-off that at some point it seems like there's evidence leaning towards the fact that at some point our future, our future uh, descendants 
made some decisions about how they were going to relate with, with each other and with the earth, perhaps recognizing that some of our emotive nature actually doesn't serve us so well. And so there's this move towards a more clinical way, a more Spock-like way, if you way, if you will, of seeing the world more logic-based rather than so emotive. And in doing so, actually, perhaps they recognize that they lost something along the way. I know we've talked about this. And so I think part of what may be happening with things like the hybridization programs that are so well documented in the literature, I think you may see some of that rescuing of things that were lost along the way. So I think that's a really interesting question. What is it about their nature that we would really want to draw from? And what perhaps have they lost along the way that they could gain by, by working with us and perhaps even creating hybrid species with us? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's uh, a great topic. I actually heard uh, Kelly Chase speaking with uh, Michael Masters about it, and we also discussed it on this program about uh, them taking uh, biological material, uh, reproductive material from men and from women, and there obviously must be a reason why they're doing that. Um, so uh, let's pass it on to Debs, please. Go ahead, ma'am. Yeah, so someone on Twitter had asked us to ask this question, and I was curious as well. You had recently mentioned that you had, of course, known about um, the Five Eyes working on this topic in the past. I also am familiar with a lot of the history of international relations, but I thought maybe you could talk about that for people who are wanting clarity. Sure. So first of all, I think we shouldn't be surprised that because Five Eyes exists, that there would be a sharing of information amongst the different nations, especially because we know that crash retrievals have not been limited to the United States territory. So either the United States tries to go in heavy handed and say, hello, Canada, hello, Australia, please give us your craft. Rather than doing that, there was more of a cooperative approach. Of course, most of it has happened inside the U.S., but these other countries have also had their own crash retrievals. So this is one thing I pointed out to in some of my social media tweets recently was that we have to remember that these things are worldwide. They go back a long time, longer than has sort of recognized in the modern UFO phenomenon. And I also want to point out to people, and I've tweeted about this before because I have some knowledge about this specifically, that unlike in our country where we sense that there's perhaps been illegal activity, where there's been reverse engineering of, of these craft done in such a way that there is no congressional oversight. So that's been passed on to contractors and whatnot. In some of these other countries, that's not been the case. They've done it fully legally in the light of day to some degree. And I'm aware of personally countries that have actually gone looking for evidence of these programs and found them almost immediately, interestingly enough. And then it becomes a much less complex question than what we have here, because here we're trying to uncover decades of secrecy and layers of bureaucracy that are cut off from other layers and the, and the extreme siloing of information. That's less complicated in some other countries. And so I think we may even begin to see some of these other countries, as we've seen hints of recently, leapfrog the US in terms of uh, beginning to push for disclosure. I also know that because of the communication between the Five Eyes and whatnot, that there was awareness that the summer of 23 was gonna be a big time for, for disclosure, for revelations to come forward that would really, really change at least potentially society's perspective on this phenomenon historically and so because of that i know some different countries that were working towards prepping their own materials so how they could actually go about briefing their first their governments and then also the public so this has been something that's been in the works for for quite a while now and uh 
I was actually involved in some of that. So I know that it's gone on. You'd be surprised sometimes who, who certain people reach out to, to try to understand this when it's not something that's well understood within some governmental circles. So that's kind of how I have some, some insight into that. I'm not surprised at all, actually. <laughs> so uh, thank you for that answer. Uh, prime time. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so one of the things I'm really interested in is how people uh, choose or deliberately pursue to induce contact experiences. So my question here is basically two parts. The first are just your general thoughts or response to people's um, deliberate pursuit of these experiences. And then the second question is what you recommend for people to integrate these experiences or sort of metabolize them and fold them into, you know, I guess the, the broad cloth of, of lived experience? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that it's worth giving a broad answer to that, a multidimensional answer, if you will, because I think one of the questions that is bantied about a lot is, is CE5 safe? Is high safe? Is this something everyone should do? Are you guaranteed to have a love and light kind of experience? Right. And while the data would suggest, again, I always encourage us to look at the data and not just go with our gut instinct, which is full of bias. The data seems to suggest that the vast majority of experiences are positive. That said, I still think one of the things that we see as a data point emerge from these kinds of encounters is that the energy you sort of see the project with, the endeavor with, ends up being reflected back to you to some degree. There's been some questions around some of the supposedly negative things that have happened at Skinwalker Ranch, for instance. Is that because in the past, military groups have gone in with kind of a military kind of perspective in terms of engaging a, a threat or an enemy potentially. And how is that reflected back? I don't mm -hmm. think it's quite as simple as that, as cookie cutter as that, but there is an element of right. that. So I think when people go out to do C5 or heist, you want to be aware of who you're going with. You don't want to yes. go with people who are being flippant about it, people who are almost daring something negative to happen or something like that, like, you know, a, a bad Ouija board experience or something. I was just going to say, it's like getting drunk and doing a Ouija board with a bunch of yeehaws. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So you want, you want to go out with people that you respect, you trust, you feel connected with a big part of what makes CE5 work is when you have a resonant field with the group you're going mm -hmm. with. So you don't want to go ideally with a bunch of strangers. I know different CE5 communities around the country who actually, when they have new members come in, they kind of uh, normalize them into the community. They have dinners with them. They meet with them. They have coffee. They talk long before they invite them into the field to actually become part of the group because they're actually looking right. for that resonant field that they, are they a good fit or not? And then when you, so when you go out, you want to be very focused on having a positive intent yourself. You want to hold positive energy, knowing that, again, that seeds the experience. You're much more likely to have a positive benevolent entity pick up on the other end if you're dialing a number even unconsciously a certain mm -hmm. way right so you want to be aware that your again your energy is going to seed the experience which also means you want to be self-aware you want to have uh, nurtured self-awareness that you're aware of the sort of resonance in your body if you have a lot of negativity a lot of fear a lot of anger frustration maybe that's not the night to do it if in general you're someone who has a lot of fear and anything to do with the unknown actually freaks you out then you might want to do some work on that before going and doing CE5, just because you don't know what you're going to invite. So I think that's the case. And when you go and actually have the experience and hopefully have a positive experience like most people do, then I think for me, for instance, one of the most interesting aspects is the kind of telepath telepathic downloads you get afterwards. It's not the actual seeing the lights in the sky doing strange things. It's the way that actually it interacts with your own consciousness. So I would mm -hmm. 
to people, be aware of that, look for it, be listening for it, for any kind of differences you, you experience. And then also, I would say, embrace the wonder of it, the, the awe mm-hmm. that you feel that reality and our cosmos is so much more complex and multidimensional than when we've usually given it credit for. And hopefully that will make people feel the sense of wonder, connectedness, not just with these beings, but with each other. And ideally it changes uh, how you live your life moving forward. Yes. Yeah, this is this is a wonderful answer. And I ask particularly because one of the, in my opinion, one of the major shortcomings right now of the psychedelic renaissance basically is having very poor uh, cultural and social narratives for how to integrate and metabolize kind of otherworldly or numinous experiences. And I think of Heist or CE5 as part of that kind of constellation of experience that we can have that can kind of refactor how we understand and engage with reality and meaning and sense-making and without um, like just kind of shoving people into these experiences without any kind of outlay um, about how to process and integrate um, can be deeply traumatic, right? It does way more harm than good. Um, And so I'm always very curious about people's approaches to um, making sense in sort of the the post-experience timeframe and folding it into like basically into daily life. So it's not just a standalone experience, but something that's fully kind of metabolized and understood. Totally. I completely agree. When you think about sometimes people might go to a music festival to escape their normal life, right? Right. I know that Nathan and I are familiar that in church circles, you sometimes get people, at least in the in the uh, the more charismatic kind of elements of the church, you get people who go to, you know, these different festivals so they can get like an experience with the Holy Spirit and they want to get filled up and they have this intense experience. And then they go back to their normal life on Monday. They got to wake up. They go to go to work. Right? They got to chop wood, that kind of thing. And so carry water. Exactly. Here <laughs> you go. Here's my thought. And, and, uh, they sort of collapse internally because they've just gone from this peak experience and they have no right. ability nor, nor, nor teaching nor expectation that they should somehow ground that into the nature of their experience of reality in general. So, right. and same thing when we come to psychedelic experiences and things like that, if people are, are trying to trip really to escape the mundanity of their, of their daily existence, then I would say that's the wrong way to go about it. You mm-hmm. want to expose yourself to a broader sense of reality so you can then integrate it and carry on differently as a result. So I think, why you're going into it really matters. And I completely agree with you that in some subcultures, it's kind of too flippant in terms of how it's approached. Mm-hmm. Hey, um, hey guys, I want to, uh, there's a lot, so a lot of questions in the chat. Nathan, what I think I want to do is after Meredith goes, we'll start the, uh, the fireside portion. And then what we'll, at the end, what I'll do is take all, uh, Julie in the chat. Hi, Julie has starred all these for us. I'm going to start with Duncan's when we do get going, but I think we should have uh, Darren do some quick hitters at the end with these questions uh, because some of them are great and they're detailed, but I think we got to get to the fireside portion. Does that sound good? Perfect. Okay. All right. Let's go with uh, Meredith for Rizzle. Can I just say how cool this chat is, Darren? I am so geeking out right now on everything that you were saying. I'm so stoked to be here and to to hear you talk. And now that I can hear you uh, talk more about how the, um, you know, experiencer integrates these uh, new revelations and new way of seeing their reality into their life. I'm totally seeing the connection between psychedelics, but had I not had my first experience a couple of weeks ago, I probably would have just been faking it. Like, uh-huh, I totally get it, but I wouldn't. <laughs> I'm totally faking it. Um, but I do want to ask you um, about 
the spiritual communities, the religious communities, because in my evangelical community 25 years ago, to talk about aliens and UFOs and all this stuff at its best, it would have been seen as not like a good use of time. It would have been like, oh, you're watching trash TV. Like, come on, sister, don't do that. Um, but at its worst, it would have been, you know, really, um, you know, borderline blasphemous. But now that, you know, we've got these mainstream media outlets talking about it, perhaps it's gained a little bit more legitimacy. And who knows, maybe they're talking about it from the pulpit. But my question for you is, I'd love to know your prediction on the contrast between how the evangelical community versus the Catholic community will react to a first national first contact scenario. And Nathan picked that up too after Darren's done. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. I've had quite a range of, of religious experience, not only in moving towards more Eastern spirituality more over the last 10 years or so, but even within my sort of Christian phase, which is still part of who I am, of course, I've been everything from a Pentecostal, charismatic Pentecostal to Vineyard Church to Southern Baptist uh, to um, Methodist to Presbyterian. I mean, I, I just sort of like, I, mean, I made sure I covered like every single, you know, angle I could. Um, this is how thorough of you. platter at the Chinese restaurant. You <laughs> yeah, got right. egg rolls, you have the spare ribs. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you have the pork. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's interesting, even within Protestant communities, how much range there is in terms of people's experience, their expectation of experience, and even the role of scripture, for instance, in their lives really varies, even amongst just those Protestant groups, which is really interesting. I also spent time in Eastern Orthodoxy and Catholicism, so I'm familiar with those too. I really love how Eastern Orthodoxy has this sense of the numinous and the sacredness and the mystery, the sacramental nature of, of reality and our experience of the divine. I love that in many ways that prepared me for some of my experiences more recently. Um, in terms of how it will be handled, I think... What's happened with the evangelical community in the United States over the last 20 years has been kind of shocking in some ways how it's been kind of aligned with politics in so many ways. And so there's kind of been this move towards making religious experience about looking towards a book. And as I've said to Nathan before, when you look towards a book, you're able to make it safe, predictable, and something that is in the past, right? So you have this sense of these religious figures that we look up to in the past had these amazing experiences, but we don't expect that for ourselves. We just look to them. Now we have the revelation in the book and we just rely on that. But of course, one of the reasons why I think that happens is that some people that have that kind of personality type that they're, they're drawn to those kinds of communities. It's partly because it is predictable and safe and encouraging. And it gives them a sense of a worldview that embraces more than just this lifetime. But it's really interesting to look at the kind of people that are drawn to even different groups within Protestantism. So I think because there even is not as much openness in some evangelical groups to ecstatic experience as there is in some Eastern Orthodox or some charismatic groups, I think you're going to see that here too. And one of the things that Nathan and I have talked about is how whenever you have unusual experiences, unusual state experiences, those tend to be viewed negatively. They tend to be viewed as that could be Satan parading as an angel of light. You know, we get all these sort of references to scripture that use very creatively to sort of box in that we know exactly what reality is. We know what the options are. We've got humans and animals on the one sort of middle domain. 
We've got angels and God the Father in heaven. We've got Satan and the demons below. And if anything comes in that's not within the middle domain, it's got to be one of those two others that quite often gets put into those categories. <clears throat> so I think I know so many times in experience or testimony, people who do come from religious circles, right, religious backgrounds, that's one of the things they most wrestle with is that that completely gets rejected almost immediately. They're told they're, they're you know, parading with demons, basically, even when they have remarkably positive, benevolent experiences, they feel like they change. People see them change in demonstrably positive ways, but it still doesn't fit that expectation. And so they're assumed that they're just basically deceived. So I think that evangelicals will have a huge uh, upswing to go through here because there's going to be a lot more to ground into their understanding of just the nature of reality and what the possibilities are in terms of non-human intelligence. Of course, even there, I always want to give the caveat that there's quite a range. So I have been speaking with some of my friends that I grew up with that are still, they would still call themselves evangelicals. And some of them have been surprisingly open-minded. And I'm, I'm happy to say that, you know, so I think it really does depend on the person. I think you'll also see kind of a, while you'll maybe get some initial comments that will sound like it wants to cookie cutter fit it into one of these categories that exist. As time goes on and more and more people speak up and as disclosure rolls out, more and more people will feel authorized to come forward and share their experiences, even people from Christian traditions. Then I think there will be this wrestling with and this reckoning with, with fear and trembling, if you will, what this all means, right? And what does this say about the nature of reality? Now, as you point out, Catholics kind of have already opened up the possibility of other beings from other worlds. Then the question becomes, do they still need a savior? How does that work? Uh, you know, how does Jesus being a human or was he human? Was he a hybrid? These are interesting questions, right, that get brought into the equation. But it seems to me that because, again, the Catholic Church has such a long history, not only in terms of practicing faith and telling people about what faith is and what it should look like, but they've also, more than any other historical institution, been able to see the phenomenon in action, because I would say that somehow it's all connected, right? So they're able to look at someone like St. Francis of Assisi and see how some of the, the physiological symptoms he went through might be very, very similar to Chris Bledsoe, right? And so what does that say about, did he also encounter orbs? Therefore, what are orbs, right? These are very interesting questions. There are people now that would look back at St. Francis of Assisi and say that he's actually suffering from rheumatoid arthritis, much like Chris Bledsoe. So this raises really profound questions. I think a certain element in the Vatican knows about that. They've known about it all along, and they've actually been prepping for that day much more than evangelicals have been. And that's when you have a centralized authority, you can actually do more planning like that. But I think that they uh, are poised to help the faithful understand that it just, just, just means we live in a more awe-inspiring, uh, stellar, kind of interconnected cosmos. As St. Francis also a noted uh, freshwater fisherman, just like Chris Bledsoe. So another parallel there. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Nathan, would you like to uh, take a cut on that question, sir? Yeah, I think I could give a, a quick jump in on it. So I, I, I agree with Darren uh, in many, many ways here, and I think he would he concur with what I'm going to say. And it really comes down to the the, the rigidity of, of people's narrative framework. And so you can find uh, rigid frameworks both on the, the right and the left in the Christian tradition. Uh, you know, if your if your evangelicalism is is extremely uh, boxed in, that you know, you, you, as Darren mentioned, you're kind of 
going by the book and the book is everything, then I think you don't have a lot of wiggle room there for any other type of experience to enter into the equation and, and to, to challenge you, to, to challenge you to grow. So instead you're going to do what anyone would do and you're going to push back against new information and really kind of harden, thicken the shell that you have there against what you're seeing uh, that's taking place. But similarly on the, on the far left where I think there is a similar kind of narrative rigidity uh, that, 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 that reality can only be a certain way, that it's, uh, you know, it's uh, highly logical, highly rational, uh, you know, anything that, that kind of occurs in, 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 within experience that, that is outside of what, what I've come to believe is, are the facts about reality, they're going to have a very difficult time with this as well. I think the traditions within Christianity that have the, the greatest sense of uh, God continuing to do work in the world that, that the spirit of God is alive in, in community, alive in relationship, uh, that, is, that the work of God is not yet finished. Those kinds of uh, believers will have an easier time in some respects dealing with some of these new uh, revelations. But, I mean, let, let's be clear, it's going to be very challenging for anyone that, that considers themselves to be firmly in that tradition, just like it's going to be challenging for those of us that 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 think we're above all that, you know, that we've left religion behind and we're living in in the world of cold rationality and, and we don't need that that stuff anymore. Uh, some of those folks are going to have the hardest time, maybe even a harder time than, than those who believe. It's oh, what's inter interesting. And I don't want to cut you off, Meredith. Did you have something to respond to that, ma'am? No, no. I, okay. I, I think that uh, both of those answers are... Um, are fair because people have a wide spectrum of beliefs within certain traditions. But I think it's just fascinating to compare the two generally Catholicism versus being a, a Protestant because of the Catholic church's history with, you know, cover up like the 1904, 1905 crash in Italy and Mussolini and, and, you know, the Vatican and all that stuff. Like it's just deeply fascinating to me because, um, while evangelicals have a very much more charismatic framework through which they express, uh, like Darren, you said, the altered states of being, um, which I I attribute my experience in the Assemblies of God Church to my ability to quite easily get into a meditative state. Like it's not a big deal. You know, right. I'm like clicked in really quickly, really easily and feel right. Uh, a lovely like vibration every time I meditate. And I attribute that to my experience in that sort of atmosphere. Um, so it's just, it's interesting, the pros and cons in each camp, if you will, um, that would allow, uh, that would create like an open door to a first contact versus a closed one. Right. Yeah. What's interesting, Darren, could, if you could help, uh, Meredith fill out her application for the Monroe Institute. We can get this taken care of real quickly, get her in, get her through the program. Right. I just be happy with a group mushroom trip. I that was <laughs> Well, you know, it, offline, you guys should uh, connect and let Darren tell you about the Monroe Institute, because I don't know a lot of details about it, but I hear it's an amazing experience and very broadening in terms of uh, using meditation and so forth. Uh, and Nathan, uh, what's interesting, your, your first point, I think, is, is probably for one reason why you're not practicing anymore is because of that. So, um, see, I was paying attention. Yep. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> as far as the fireside, uh, who would like to go first? Primetime, would you like to throw your topic out there first, ma'am? 
you're uh, you're putting me on the spot. I was I've been thinking about what both Darren and Nathan said about religion, and it, it I'm just gonna kind of sidecar onto that and say it reminds me of something we say in data science and AI about how all models are bad, but some models are useful, right? <laughs> and, and that like we're sort of given there at a certain point. Um, it requires a very substantial degree of intellectual and spiritual honesty about the limitations of our frameworks, whether it's from a strict materialist interpretation of reality um, or a, a spiritual approach within the confines of an organized religion and its associated theology and dogma. Um, at a certain point, it feels like the, these models, we have to be um, very candid about the, their edges. Um, and also, I think there's a degree of um, either maturity or foolhardiness that allows us to kind of step beyond those confines. And I think that's where the really interesting both personal and shared experiences happen is when we're sort of willing to unfetter ourselves from the confines of these beliefs or ideologies and be willing to just step into these spaces uh, completely open to uh, whatever outcomes or experiences may exist within them. Is this so? Is, so th is, is that your top your your topic? Like, do I? No, I was just this? kind of responding. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. do you, because I can. I, if that if you want to make that your topic, I'll I'll respond to that if you want. But I go, don't know. Go if, for it, DJ. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts. No, if, if you have a different topic, I won't. You know. I no? I, I don't. I was thinking. Okay. Of, I was just kind of cogitating. Uh, yeah, I mean. My thing, you know, we've seen this now that I, I've got my feet really wet. In, no, you don't need to move us around, Nathan. That way I'll be able to keep order of who goes when. I got you. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, the the Bigfoot topic and uh, obviously us uh, collectively experiencing this UFO topic together and listening to people like Exo and Deb and, you know, Nathan, yourself, uh, you know, even Meredith on her show, is it's a very non-judgmental position that she comes from she doesn't go with an angle she goes in a, in a, she goes there in i want to learn about this and deconstruct it and figure it out so that people understand it not hey this is what i think and i'm going to put my opinion out there and shape this the way i want it to be so openness is is the is the key um i have put this out there uh leah to uh, my, my a, a bunch of friends that are outside of our community. I sent them the video. I sent them the debrief article. I sent them the uncut, uh, the uncut uh, interview, which was great. Um, thank you, Techno Poodle, for putting that out there. Um, and people have uh, a lot of, in a lot of cases chosen not to watch it. Uh, they'll tell you, "Oh man, I haven't got to it yet." Uh, you know, it's only the biggest story of all time. But you know, by all means, pick up your dry cleaning and your Little Caesars. Um, but, <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it's going to be very difficult from that standpoint, but to me, if you remain open and, and try to work through these topics, obviously you're going to, every one of us has a weighted system in our head that we assign a different weighted value to these different hypotheses that we ingest. And then we come out with, okay, yes, this is possible in my weighted system. It's quite low. In, you know, over here, this hypothesis is quite high, but I'm open to, to all of them. I think that's the, the, the really, not only is it the safe place to be and the smart place to be, but if you're in the position of saying this is not real, there's no proof of anything, nothing's happened, nothing's happening, um, then that really isn't the safe or smart place to be. It might make you feel safe, but then if there is an inexplicable uh, um 
sort of uh, if there's an irrefutable, you know, contact event, which, you know, Darren's alluded to, Deb's alluded to, um, David Grush alluded to that, then you're going to find yourself in a position where you won't feel safe. Um, if seeing a video and Nathan, if someone sees a video and a photo, I mean, they're going to go, oh, well, that 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 could have been faked. So everyone who says they want proof, you're in, short of you walking inside the craft and touching the walls and asking whether there's a paper towel dispenser or the, the little hand dryer, um, you're not going to get proof ever. Because if there's a photo, you're going to say it's fake. And if there's a video, you're going to say it's fake. It's come from the government. It's got to be fake. They're trying to play with us. So, so from that standpoint, remain open-minded about all these hypotheses. Obviously, you're going to have a weightist bias. You know, Darren spoke about bias. We all have them. That's why I asked him that question about the, the different messages he received. Obviously, we all have a bias. When we receive information, some of it, we take it, and it's going to be more uh, fit into the frame, uh, fit into our value system. And some of it is going to be like, I'm not trying to hear you. Uh, you know, debunker jackass, you know what I mean? So it's, it's, you know, that's real. So anyway, I, I hope that that sort of answers you, but the openness I think is the key aspect. Debs. I have a hard time thinking of Catholicism as not being open-minded. I've, I was raised Catholic actually. Um, and frankly, they're so into the paranormal. It's unbelievable. They're the reason we have movies like the exorcist, you know? So I, I don't think that that's going to be a problem. There is a reason, you know, Catholics would say God had a son that came to earth because God never was on earth, you know? So I think there's an open-mindedness there already. That's a given. But I, for some reason, while we were talking about this, what came to mind was maybe the people who are open-minded, who are paying attention, who are picking up that they need to work on their frequencies and all that are the people who are supposed to be. They're the people who are supposed to be in tune right now. And that maybe other people just aren't there yet. So it is, is you know, it, you know, there's some steps that need to be taken for some people, if that makes sense. And that kind of goes to that whole control theory thing, which, you know, I know um, is going to come up at some point. But that was actually something I will bring up again for my topic. Also, yeah, I, I was going to say, Dr. Pasolka, who whom all of us here have spoken with wholeheartedly agrees with you on that um, uh, on that position about Catholicism and their openness to it. And she thinks religion is integral, necessary. And um, and it's 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 sort of in the right, proper place to address a lot of these issues, in her opinion. You you, you got you got into that with her, Meredith. So. Yeah, I did. She she was the first person to really introduce the uh, idea to me about the interconnectedness between um, the things that we traditionally have separate boxes for, <laughs> you know, like um, I like the analogy of waffles versus spaghetti and waffle. We like waffles, right? There's hard ridges. The, the syrup stays in its little box and it's separate. Nothing is touching anything else, but really life and spirituality and all of these things that we're talking about are much more like spaghetti. They are intertwined, saucy, messy. And if you leave them out on the counter too long, they will all stick together and you'll never untangle them. I love it. Oh uh, man. I was thinking about Roscoe's chicken and waffles right there. Uh, <laughs> Darren, <laughs> what's your take on what primetime had to say? 
Well, first of all, I just want to agree with Meredith and, and echo that, that, again, that was my experience. That I think some of my experiences in charismatic circles in the past actually prepared me for this. And I've seen things that are called different things that are, that are exactly the same thing. So it's interesting how we attach certain labels to, to the same experience in different traditions. I'd also say that in terms of models that Leah referred to, so my introduction originally to Eastern spirituality came through Thomas Merton. So I was interested in Thomas Merton's writing. Contemplative Christianity was a big thing I moved towards and then sort of seamlessly made my way over to where the, there's the bleeding edge that moved into merging with Eastern perspectives. And some of the most ecstatic kind of experiences that various nuns had in history and people like Thomas Merton that really had this intense, numinous experience with the divine. And then you compare that to what people in Eastern traditions experience in terms of the numinous and the connection of everything, you start to have a lot of crossover. And suddenly the terms that we are so attached to in terms of models and whatnot begin to dissolve. And so I would say one of the things that's the best antidote to being too committed to a model is experience, is being open to new experience, to actually introduce yourself to new experience. When you do that, you change. And I think, again, on the not so fun side, you get ontological shock when not only does your model not fit for it, but no model seemingly fits for it. But again, that's how we grow and learn. And I think about someone like Dorothy Isaac, for instance, when I sort of connect now models and traditions and our expectations and how that seeds experience. So Dorothy Isaac had these amazing experiences. She was in the Vancouver area and her initial experiences were extremely positive and sort of awe-inspiring. Then she went to her church community who said, like I've been talking about, unfortunately, they said, that can't be good. That must be demonic. What's interesting is not just that they said that, but she began to believe that, wonder about it at least. And then for the first time, she began to notice shadow beings manifesting in her home. Then she said, wait a second, somehow my energetic resonance is seeding this process in some way. I'm going to go back to my original perspective, which is that there's love and light here. And if I enter into the experience with positive intention to reach out and connect with benevolent beings, then that will be my experience. And sure enough, that's, started, that's what started happening again. So I know some people will be overwhelmed with the role that we can play in the nature of the experiences we have. So again, I, I want to suggest spiritual hygiene, energetic preparation, work towards having some sort of energetic immune system, if you will, so that when you enter into these encounters, you have some sort of protection, some sense of what you're reaching out to. But in order to dissolve and expand our models and not be too committed to the models because the map is not the territory, I think we have to look to experience. I want to say hello. Every There's so many of you in the chat. Uh, I just in trying to get it all in. I got to uh, keep going, but uh, we do appreciate you all. I see you, uh, Mick from the UK. I see you, David, and, and so forth, uh, Anon, and uh, yeah, Duncan. And I know Deanne is in there somewhere. Uh, there's Duncan. I got your question up. So uh, discombobulated was a great question. I got to add that to the polysyllabic uh, <laughs> words that we had tonight. Um, Nathan, uh, what's your take on that, sir? Yeah, so I'm, a, I'm a, as you know, I'm a very kind of holistic thinker in, in really? the way I look at, at people. Uh, and I, uh, you know, I'm of the opinion that there's something about human behavior and, and personality that, that speaks to the heart of reality. And where I'm going with this is there are tendencies within some, everyone know, know, knows people a lot like this. There are people who are, who are the conservative. 
They don't want to try something new. They don't want to entertain a new experience. Then there are the people who say, sign me up for the new experience. I want to go on the road trip. I want to see everything. We all know people like this, and we know that we ourselves slot into one of those categories. Sometimes we, we kind of bounce back and forth a little bit. So if we're being really honest, we can recognize that we have at root in the human family these tendencies. And I think these tendencies themselves are at the root of reality. It reality has a, a desire for sameness, but, a, but also a, a, a competing desire for novelty. And these two things have an inner relationship. And through relationship, we have beauty and truth and change and, and, and progress. And so when looking at it from that vantage point, you know, I can honor where anyone really is in their, their journey. I can respect where they are in their journey, and I can see that it has value in relationship to where I am, even if I have a totally different opinion about what the, 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 the nature of whatever it is happens to be. I can see some relational benefit by acknowledging the way that they look at the world. And so there's a there's a pliability there that I think is essential. Everyone here has, I think, touched on that. There's it's important that we, in a way, kind of keep our beliefs in superposition. And I think that that is uh, really just being honest. Right. I, I get so frustrated when people like to say that I'm I'm an X, I'm a Y, I'm a whatever it is. I put a label up and that's who I am. No one yes. is like that in your mind. You are entertaining a host of of possibilities all the time. And it's not until we ask you that one emerges from your awareness and, and that you, you bring it into the world. But before that happens, you are in a state of superposition, right? And I'm just using this quantum analogy here because I think folks are, are hearing it in, in you know, popular uh, parlance. I think it's a valuable analogy. So I'm just arguing that we need to be open. We need to be also uh, respect where everybody happens to be and that we can find in the way that in which people are and humanity is in that relational quality of, of human existence, we can find that a little kernel of what, what deeper reality is, is doing. In terms of you respecting where people are on their journey, am I included in that? Like, do you respect? Absolutely. And that shirt for sure. So that's why I have the black shirt, right? <laughs> and you've got your amazing shirts. Like, but together, <laughs> it's beautiful music, man. That's what it's all about. I think we froze him in, in laughter. He's yeah. frozen in, in carbonite. I, mean, I, I want to screen cap this right now. It's fantastic. Yeah, he's in memoriam. As, <laughs> and that is exactly how we would all think of DJ. Exactly. If, yes. <laughs> Just like that with the stars in the background. It's completely perfect. <laughs> Absolutely fabulous. All right. Well, while DJ is getting his audio uh, and, and video worked out, we're going to go ahead and pass the torch over to Deb. I know you hinted a little bit about what you wanted to touch on. So why don't you walk us through it? All right. So I'm kind of dealing with, of course, the the control hypothesis that Valet has mentioned, um, that basically the phenomenon is putting on a show for us, putting on a play. And the reason this is something that's on my mind is because a lot of experiencers um, that I talk to feel like they've been put in place, like a chess piece. So I wanted to throw that around for people to just contemplate about what that might mean. And I also want to say that there are concerns also that the government 
is aware that we're chess pieces like and that they might try to manipulate and use that um experiencers also including for you know that whole flying the saucer thing that they're having trouble with so what do you think yeah that's a good one um darren i'd like you to kick this one off for us i know you got some thoughts on this sure i think of course one of the questions is if we are pawns within this larger play how much can we really understand the full picture of what's going on to what degree again someone earlier mentioned humility i think humility is really really essential here not just in terms of understanding whether or not a control system is in play but again in terms of our reality models one of the things i talked about was the the extratempestral hypothesis that mike masters has brought forward i had a really great long conversation with mike on friday and we see a lot of the same things uh, in this. And what both of us have been frustrated by is how we've interacted with physicists who are so locked in on their perspective on the nature of how space-time works. And uh, I, I pointed to people like Nima Arkani Hamed, these, these cutting-edge physicists who said that space-time is not foundational. In some ways, it's not really a thing. It's part of our perceptual set, but it's not actually indicative of underlying reality. So it just goes to show how little we know. And speaking of Valet that Deb brought up, he was also the one that repeatedly said, the one thing the phenomenon teaches us is that we do not understand space-time. Since then, we've actually learned that space-time is actually not pointing to foundational reality. So then we realize there's a whole substrate that we're not even familiar with yet. So that just shows you how much is in play, the full scope of this. And again, I think some humility is in order even interdisciplinarily, we need to have humility in, in terms of how we apply these things. We need to think more as generalists, even in academia, so that we don't sort of lock, lock off into these little subsets and try to become experts in these, these uh, microcosms when that doesn't really speak to the total reality. We should be speaking to each other. We need to get past this sallowing of information and sallowing of sort of academic specialties so that we can actually have a conversation and open our minds and, and increase the, the extent of our models. Um, in terms of the control system, again, I think my perspective is that we should look to people like Valet and Keel and be thankful for them. But I do tend to notice in the UFO community a bit of like hero worship there in the same way that we see in religious traditions that people say, well, these people had these amazing experiences, the Abrahams, you know, the Apostle Pauls of the world, that's not me. I'm going just to look at their experience and learn from it. In the same way, we tend to take what was put forward as these cutting edge ideas in the 60s and 70s by people like Valet and Keel, and I still see people uh, sort of leaning on those as the chief hypotheses. I think we have a lot more information now. I think the time piece is so central, for instance, as well as this, these other aspects, these other dimensions, these other contact modalities that speak to this broader reality. So I think for me, I'm less attached to the control system thing, actually. I just think that we are part of a really complex, multidimensional array of beings and that we are somewhere maybe towards the beginning of that in terms of uh, our sophistication. So we tend to, again, in our, I think in our hubris and some of our bias, we say, well, here we are, we're on the chess set. Actually, what's going on is, is five-dimensional chess at the very least. And we are so, in some ways, low low rung on the ladder that I don't think we're even in a place where we can begin to notice, recognize, and even try to tamper with 
the control system as Valet has kind of talked about in terms of going back into the projector screen and see what that's looking at. So I think I would just, again, say humility, uh, resist the, the what I call this, this desire to declare that we're at near pinnacle knowledge. I don't think we are at all. I think we are, we have yeah. more to learn than we've already learned at this point. And I think that should give us pause about any kind of overarching theory of everything that we would propose at this time. If you guys can get me caught up on where, who went, where are we, who's... Yeah, we went to Deb next, and uh, okay. she put forth the uh, idea of the control hypothesis that Jacques Vallée has talked about. Um, so if you want to take that, you're welcome to, or, or... Well, that was Duncan's question, so that's great. So we already knocked Duncan's question well, out from the chat, well, but did Meredith get to go? Nope. I wanted no, to, we just to started clarify. With Deb, Deb, go to, ahead. To summarize, it's are we being manipulated? And if not by non-human intelligence, are we being manipulated possibly by the government to help them with their use of technology from non-human intelligence? I, I think David Grush says we're not be, we're not helping enough. He'd like to see the general, you know, all these folks from universities and, and that are, you know, in academia that have some of the brightest scientific and engineering minds in the world get a shot at this and he's irritated that sole source uh, contracts are being given out to whatever company uh, and we don't have the best people looking at this uh, that could solve a lot of problems and that was part of his motivation for coming forward among uh, two or three other things so I just wanted that just came to mind but Meredith would you like to take that we'll just go in this sort of counterclockwise circle here yeah I gotta say I'm not at all familiar with this theory as someone who is definitely compared to all of you, generally an outsider to ufology. Um, this is what my husband calls getting into the weeds right, <laughs> of it. Like he's Southern, can you tell? Um, and so, you know, I just have all my effort is keeping up with the acronym alphabet soup that I find myself swimming in all the time. UAPs, UFOs, arrows, ATIP, you know, it's all, all of this and the cast of characters that I have to keep up. I'm just being honest, it's right? True. Like there, I, I'm, I, could try to say something really intelligent here, but the truth is, is I get lost in all of this. So I love what you said, Darren, about keeping that, that spirit of humility and, you know, with it to combine it with you, with what you said earlier about the spirit of open-mindedness, much like when you do go into like to sit with a plant medicine that you're not really trying to control it. You're not telling it what it's going to do for you. You're just simply being with it and being kind of with yourself. And so that's definitely my, my approach to all of this right now. So I don't have any sophisticated theories or comments on sophisticated theories because um, I'm just kind of eyes wide open at this point and also observing those that someone said this earlier about those who are not uh, even wanting to take in this information. So I'm kind of a, kind of like a ultra observer and ultra learner at this point in the game. Maybe curiositor could be. I that's oh <laughs> look at you look at you have inquisitor then you have curiosity that's I like that it's good yeah that's what I call my my listeners of my show because it's Meredith for real the curious introvert because you know I like to be fancy and it has to be such a long uh, uh, episode or a uh, podcast name so my listeners are curiositors out there in the oh, world nice, being nice. curious yes if we are petitioning right now so the dictionary companies uh, to to see if we can get that added. Uh, and get you credited with it. So, um, Nathan, would you, Nathan, would you like to take a shot at that, sir? 
Yeah, sure. I think, uh, you know, it may appear to us like it's a control system, but it's not, right? It's uh, it's sort of how we're, we're overlaying onto these experiences, this notion of control, because control is actually quite familiar to our human experience, uh, a power dynamic, etc. Like there's always someone trying to control me uh, and, and inhibit what I can do. And so I think we're, we're just sort of adopting that perspective. Um, I do think, Deb, kind of to some of your point there, uh, those who don't understand what, what this is have really no other recourse but to go to those who are experiencing this and to try to understand what messages are coming from those who experience this. Now, I know Darren would nod along with this. What, what, what goes wrong in this process is that we go to the experiencer and we listen to what they say and we take that as literal, but we forget that they're, have, they're contextualizing their experience as they're telling it to us. And so when Chris Bledsoe talks about his experience, you have, to, you have to know what framework he's coming from to understand why he located his experience within aspects of that framework. You have to kind of piece that apart and look at the, the deeper level. And I think, you know, Jean Keel does some of this and, and Valet as well, certainly. But I, I would kind of argue that the government folks maybe aren't as really good at doing that. And instead we're, and, and a lot of, a lot of the folks in the UFO community aren't very good at that. Uh, you know, as Darren mentioned earlier, we have a lot of this sort of hero worship and we, we kind of write these things down that people say, Oh, Elizondo said this, let me put that in the book here. And I'm going <laughs> to cite that chapter and verse and I'm going to do my ritual. And th and that is what the UFO is, right? I think we're, we're missing the, the, the point there that it is a much richer tapestry and, and, and this is going to hit at something that I think we're really going to struggle with. And that's the way that we come about and understand the world right now isn't well fitted, well suited to what the phenomena really is. And so we're going to have to kind of build from the ground up, so to speak, or reclaim uh, traditions that we have lost uh, in order to best understand what this really is we have we've atrophied that's the best way to put it we, we've atrophied in our capacity to understand this and we're going to have to start working those muscles one of the things that jim semivan said um is that um one of the reasons among probably half a dozen or a dozen reasons the government didn't want to talk about this is he said they don't understand what it is and david grush said that as well in his interview he said we don't we don't know what it is um, so that, you know, part of the openness is knowing when you know, when you don't know and saying when you don't know, well, it's not good when that's the government, because as far as a, a lot of citizenry is, is concerned, they have, they need to know. <laughs> so we want, we want answers, you know, we're going to do the, you know, the, the Colonel, uh, Jessup, I want the truth, you know, all that kind of business or Tom Cruise rather. <laughs> so, so anyway, that, that, that's the, the problem is they don't know. Um, and. Let me pass it over to Primetime to to entertain that one. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I want to comment on something that Nathan said, which is basically how contextualized these experiences are and how our language is just so poor for wrapping around these experiences and ideas, let alone like just having a cultural dynamic itself that's extremely dismissive of all kinds of numinous experience outside of particular containers, like we've already discussed, mystical, religious, or evangelical settings. Um, you know, and I also think that particularly in like the Western modern tradition and in popular imagination, like scientism and materialism really rules the day. 
Um, but of course, this is an interpretive framework that's so poorly suited for this subject. Um, and I keep coming back to like Thomas Kuhn and these ideas of like the need for scientific revolutions and just fundamentally how science is done. Uh, going back to what I said earlier about how all models are bad, but some models are useful. Like again, having the willingness and the humility to uh, genuinely reflect without agenda on the limitations of the Western scientific empirical method. Um, everything from the reproducibility crisis um, to just how things are statistically measured and interpreted. Um, like being very honest about the facilities and functions that we have for sort of documenting um, and framing our uh, experience. And then also understanding that this entire method, this whole framework is so poorly suited to capture and understand like open dynamic systems, uh, which is where we are, right? We're situated in a complex system. This is not a closed container with transactional events occurring. Um, and this is like, when I keep coming back to this subject and kind of reworking it internally and intellectually, this is what I keep coming back to is that at a, a sort of basic level, how we approach and understand and interpret our reality um, is just uh, poor suited for anything that uh, is not in a totally controlled environment. Um, and that's, that's just what I keep coming back to with this subject. Um, and, and as for government, uh, knowledge. I mean, my, my general personal opinion is that the government is probably about as clueless as the average uh, other people who are invested in this subject. I'm generally more of the opinion that when it comes to institutions kind of holding cloistered knowledge, I'm more inclined to see the Catholic Church uh, is something of an institution of record on this subject, given their long history, their academic and interdisciplinary um, work, and also their ability to basically function um, in a more clandestine fashion than I think a lot of the public institutions are able to. People are like, what? The Vatican? Yeah. I know. <laughs> hey, I've been, Jesus, listen to me. I've been saving this up for like an hour and a half. Uh <laughs> no, I want to say, Primetime, what you made me think of there is something Frank posed this question on Twitter, an open question to Twitter this week. Frank is our other sure. cabbie from England. And um, there is no framework. There, right. There's no box. And, and, and humans don't do well when we don't have a framework and we don't have to have a box and we have to figure it out together. And we just mm -hmm. don't have this compartment. People, they're going to try to put it in a compartment. Probably going to, you know, it's going to be square peg, round hole, possibly. So I, I'm with you on that. But um, let's go to uh, Meredith and her topic, please. I would love to talk about what you mentioned in, uh, I think it was Becoming Who We Are podcast, Darren. You talked about a professor friend of yours in Montana thinks that the grays are us 10,000 years from the future. And if, if we continue on this evolutionary path, that was not anything I'd ever heard before. And so I would love to hear everyone's thoughts on that to kind of expound, expand on that. Well, guess what? The first one that's going is Darren. And by the way, we will get Michael Masters for your podcast. But anyway, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I'm actually doing the podcast this weekend for Point of Convergence on this topic as well, because not only is I think there's a lot of relevant data historically that when we see it in the correct light, there's a lot of support for this notion in terms of a hypothesis. In fact, when I look at it now, again, I see kind of a bias that we have not seen it beforehand, that it's not been one of the most uh, predominant kind of paradigms, usually the extraterrestrial and the interdimensional, the ultra terrestrial. Sorry, Meredith, I'm throwing some more deep in the weeds terms to you there. 
Um, hey, I just I have a, a list of words that I have to go look up after this anyway, so right. we might as well just add them to the list. It's cool. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so Mike has put forward this notion of an extratempestrial. So rather than extraterrestrial, where the notion is they're outside of the Earth, temp as in temporal, right? So they're outside of our time frame. Basically, is the notion. So extratempestrial at its your list. Um, <laughs> not, and in fact, he doesn't just say that they Literally. are <laughs> right. Right. What's interesting is it's not just that they are us from 10,000 years in the future, but if time travel becomes a thing at some point, and there's lots of reasons to believe it will number one, because there's nothing really in physics that would suggest it can't happen. And we already understand sort of theoretically how it would happen. And humanity tends to go through life in such a way that when we can do something, we will do it. We won't even think much about the consequences, right? We will just do it. So what he's actually suggested is even the different forms we see over time uh, are not actually necessarily beings from coming from different planets, but different versions of humanity along the evolutionary trajectory. So some are much further along than others. So you'll get some, like the Space Brothers, for instance, are beings that come back and look a lot like us. So they might be from not too far ahead on the evolutionary path. You get other ones that look quite divergent from us. Those would be much, much further along. And those ones that are further along and look more different than us also tend to have greater capacities telepathically, their psi capacities, their psi abilities, their ability to manipulate space-time, their ability to control behavior. All that becomes increased over time, which is what you would expect in terms of an evolutionary trajectory. So I think there's a lot of support for that in the historical data. And when you think about it in terms of what is the least complex way of explaining that? What's interesting with Mike's hypothesis, and he wasn't the first one to champion it, but because he's an, a biological anthropologist, he's uniquely qualified to notice that when he looks at a gray alien and a modern homo sapien sapien, he sees beings that are undoubtedly related, genetically related. We also hear hints about the Roswell crash might have involved bodies that had genetic uh, aspects that were in common with us. So again, you see it in the literature when you look for it. Some people have suggested even that the reason why the secret's been kept so long is because they're not actually space aliens, this one contingent, but actually us from the future. And then you perhaps have, getting back to a really big uh, open-ended answer here in terms of how the government might be involved, how we might be pawns. If some people within the government, for instance, are aware that they are us from the future, and there's a, this awareness that if there was too much widespread of acknowledgement of that, then that might change the trajectory of the timeline. Then you could feasibly consider ways that you might want to keep that secret for the sake of the good of humankind kind of thing. And you might also buy into this notion that these others that come back and say, turns out in the future, we are genetically impoverished. We've taken some wrong turns. We need actually to refresh the pool by going back to our ancestors, getting increased genetic variants and inputting it back into the population in the future for the, for the health of the stock, basically. And you might say, well, we're, we're all one big crew here. And so therefore we're willing to do it. If you're a military group, you might justify doing that even more so if you're promised technology in exchange for these kinds of things. So somehow you see different elements of the historical narrative and somehow a lot of it can wrap itself around, somehow attach to this notion that they are us from the future. Uh, again, I think it's much more complex than that. I think that there's been evidence of perhaps splicing of other kinds of genetic backgrounds. They often look very insectoid. You kind of get the reptilian aspect. Again, these are beings common to the earth already. So you could actually limit your scope to just 
earth tradition and earth origin and end up with all of these forms we're seeing if you bring in time travel. So, and of course, if it's time travel and it's in the future, then by then they probably have populated the cosmos. They probably are a Zeta Reticuli perhaps. That doesn't mean that's their origin though. So I think it's a really compelling argument. The longer I've, I've really sat with it and looked at the data and even some of the stuff I've heard coming out of the intelligence community in terms of what they're aware of this uh, being part of the, the equation. And again, this notion of like somehow maybe they're perhaps here uh, to do with some sort of cataclysm that's coming and trying to change the eventuality of that based on tweaking the timeline in such a way that you don't cause too much change, but just enough to perhaps prevent that. They're perhaps even being different factions with different agendas. When we think about humanity today and how divided we are and how we have very different ways of seeing the world and different ways of conducting our affairs, suddenly if we consider these beings being something like us, but just from the future, then it's easier for us, I think, to entertain the notion that they would have different factions, different agendas, different ways of seeing the world even. That's my two cents. I love it. I, I used to think string theory was like a, a, a concept that smart people entertain themselves with on their downtime. But now I feel like I need a crash course in it just to be prepared for whatever's coming next through the news. Right. Um, yeah, I guess I'll go, go next to each. I think you're on mute. Still, nope. Michael Masters is so entertaining. You would love to have him on your podcast. He's so funny and um, he'll throw some some uh, four letter words in there uh, for a PhD. <laughs> it's funny. But Nathan, go ahead, sir. Yeah, I mean, Darren, I couldn't do a better job of explaining that theory than, than you just did. Uh, I would add, and I think you hinted at this, that the, the data suggests that there are uh, a lot of other entities as well um, and entities that maybe are non-corporate corporeal can't get that there you, go. you got it yes corporeal. thank you yeah. corporeal um you know that that may be and we've heard this right we've heard that there are beings of light uh and that you can you can find those examples uh, throughout you know human history in fact uh so there may be uh, types of intelligence that aren't necessarily uh, you know genetically human or have a human lineage uh and exist in different areas or planes of reality than than what we exist in um, and they, too, maybe have a, a, an approach to messing with things that might be different than what the human tendency would be. So you can imagine as this gets more and more complex with perhaps different human lineages competing and trying to do different things and different entities which are not human that have competing priorities as well. Uh, you can see how the interplay of all these kinds of uh, beings might result in some of the odd things that we uh, have heard re recounted. Um, I think it's a compelling hypothesis. It, it's also one of those things like time travel where it just kind of can drive you crazy. It's like, well, you know, if we introduce time travel in, in a TV show, I always get sort of frustrated because it feels like this like ridiculous MacGuffin that just sort of explains every problem that the show encounters. So I, uh, I, I don't like it for that reason. Uh, maybe TV has ruined it for me, but I do like it for its explanatory power. So... He said that to Kelly Chase today. He said uh, that Back to the Future ruined it for everybody. I was listening today. It's really it's ironic that we're Michael Masters heavy, and, and I just heard him today. But uh, we're going to have to be relatively concise in our answers here because it's uh, we're going to be coming up on two hours here fairly shortly. So, prime time. Go ahead, ma'am. 
You know, one of the things I'm really curious about and I'd love to hear people's thoughts on is how much of this subject is basically an artifact of modernity versus how much is something that has existed alongside humans uh, basically since time immemorial. Um, and I say this because uh, granted we're in the thick of it right now, but it sometimes feels as if we're in some sort of acceleration period uh, between the psychedelic renaissance and sort of the rise in this um, I, I would say like unlabeled spirituality and sort of the openness to subjectivity and qualitative experience. Um, and also kind of, um, I don't wanna call it a regression, but sort of uh, almost existing in something of a post-truth era in a lot of respects. And so um, I'm wondering what the thoughts are on how much of this, uh, when I talk about the phenomena, how much of this is has been with us for a long time and how much of it uh, we think is um, an artifact of uh, modern human experience. Well, one, one thing is uh, we haven't, we didn't get you to react to uh, the question oh. that Meredith had, and then we'll entertain. Sorry. You. So, <laughs> I'm you like, anything? I'm like front running this. Did you have anything on Michael masters real quick? I'll react to it real quick and then we'll move on to your question. Sure. Sorry. Go ahead. I, I don't have any response to Michael masters, okay. unfortunately. Oh, you and you, no coffee for, for you too. No coffee for you too. Um, but hell, you're in Idaho. You could see Dr. Jeff Melstrom and see his Bigfoot uh, foot cast <laughs> collection uh, at Idaho State. Anyway, um, yeah, my, my take is, uh, you know, Meredith, I try to distill everything down to very simple terms so that somebody like me who's watching or listening can sort of have a way to take in this information and find, you know, a way that they at least one avenue to look at it. So, you know, I've said this, you know, before I even uh, I before we interviewed Dr. Masters, Nathan and I and Deb talked about this. And I just said, if I, I can't know why um, the, that an intelligence would want our biology, um, but I do know that they find an importance in it. I just don't know what that is. I can hypothesize about what that is and we can speculate and that's great because that's what we have fun doing here. But there's no question that they find a value in it. Otherwise, um, they wouldn't be taking it from all these experiencers. We can also look at cattle mutilations. And one of the interesting things that Darren brought up real quickly is he mentioned mantids and, and insectoids and stuff, right? And reptilian types. So it's very obvious when a farmer loses a piece of his stock and there is some surgical laser-like cut on areas with no blood on areas of this cattle that get everybody's attention. But who is going to notice if something like that were to happen to a reptile or to an insect that they have then used, uh, as Darren was talking about? Maybe they have harvested their DNA as well. For what reason? I don't know, but it's... He said, as you said, Darren, they could be coming uh, other uh, species from these planet uh, that, that some of the intelligences that reportedly uh, it looks like them. That could be why um, we haven't figured out why David Polites had these workers pick up a moose in the middle of a field. And this this UFO literally like drug it. Off. I don't know if you guys saw that, but levitated it up and took it off somewhere Um and, and so for what reason, we don't know, but they find value in it. Uh, it's just we can only speculate. But it is it is very, very interesting, to say the least. Um, so now, uh, 
can you just uh, hit the last part of your question prime time? I think I'll hit Deb that wanted a quick, uh, she wanted to jump in real quick. I want oh. to give Deb an opportunity. Yeah, I, I wanted to answer um, also because I don't take anything off the table when it comes to the phenomenon, which is a really broad term because there's so many things going on. Um, so I've also considered how our technology is rapidly approaching what people are describing when they talk about um, UFOs, when they talk about entities. We have created biological robots. We are already coming up with the idea of incubators for humanity, um, like that we don't have to, you know, make our children anymore they're already doing CRISPR technology you know um other countries are not as ethically bound as ours and are probably doing things that we don't even know about already you know and when it comes to things like going into space you know we're like oh no one else would do that but we're doing it so i think there if you just follow the path of what we have done then there we can't rule out future human hypothesis so that's what I wanted to add to that. Deb, thank you so much. I'm sorry. I, f I forgot that you hadn't gone yet. So I apologize about that. Uh, anybody who wants to see people creating something in our image, go check out Robert Hansen of Hansen Robotics. I think it's in Hong Kong or something where he created like a little robotic daughter and is playing the piano in his, his apartment. And it looks it looks basically like a little Chinese girl. Um, and it is real, and he refers to this robot as his daughter, and it is extremely creepy. So that goes along with what you said, Tim. Um, okay, so if you could just hit up that last part to contextualize uh, your question, just reiterate it real quick. The the, the last part there, prime time. Yeah, I was I was really asking for people's thoughts on how much of this phenomena is um an artifact of modernity right like how much mm -hmm, of it yeah. is something that's emerging with greater frequency or greater intensity or more popularly um in our current moment um or if it's something that has existed i would say with the same degree of intensity over time um and has not substantially changed over the last you know let's say 80 years well, the same. Do, I'll take this first. It's going to go again counterclockwise. Uh, it can't have happened with the same degree of intensity because we didn't have a 24-hour news media. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have all these tools to talk about it. But the scrawlings on the cave walls, uh, the Native American uh, drawings on their uh, their hieroglyphic symbols or whatever that they have drawn, um, the the artwork that is from many many years ago that show saucer-like objects. So I think it's always been there. Uh, the fact that we're talking about it more is part of modernity, but I don't think it has anything to do with it's more or less real now because uh, of the fact uh, that we have this, you know, we're able to sit there in five different places and have a video conversation uh, and we have the Internet. So, um, no, I, I, I think it's always been there um, and it's just something that we're coming to grips with because we have this increased communication it's not only reading one another's books and so forth but it's a, a lot of conversation that's happening electronically that we couldn't have done before you know when i was growing up we you know <laughs> i mean you could not have had the conversations that we're having today because twitter didn't exist you know this didn't exist so um i think that's all it is and and it's just uh, it's going to be very very difficult 
for people, a lot of people to come to terms with this. We are living in a bubble. Mer we have the blessing tonight to have somebody like Meredith who lives outside the bubble, but she has gone, she's found the access door, and she's ducked her head in there, and she's kind of looking around. She closed it behind her. She's going to have a conversation and then leave the bubble and then leave the, you know, the crazies that are us to talk about it the rest of the week. So anyway, that that's how I see it, uh, prime time. Debs. Okay, so I actually think the reason we're able to broach this subject and become more open to it and spiritual with it and all of those things now um, is because we are so, like, generally speaking, I can't say this for every country or every population, but we're at a point now where we have the room to do that again. Because initially there were, you know, grave concerns about our species staying alive and you know, technology wasn't really around to help us. You know, we were kind of more concerned about getting food on the table, so to speak. <laughs> like now people still have to do that, but they're also a lot more comfortable in ways that they take for granted. So they have room to sit down and read a book and, you know, contemplate. And, and we do also have all this information that's available to us now. So I think the, the combination of just being more secure in our situation on the planet and you know also um having all of that information available so quickly and easily has taken us to this next level interesting uh miss um miss meredith that is an interesting um perspective deb because i was just imagining in my mind like you know calling all beings but in a country where maybe they don't have as much food security <laughs> like what would that be happening what would the conversation be like what's a you know what's a different version of what this is but with different needs met or not met so yeah i don't know i think i'm i don't think i have a, a comment on it but just a just a continuing thought that will trail this evening i'm sure darren well, the first thing I want to say, I think a couple of people have already hinted at this, but I want to reiterate again that my perspective is that this is much more than one thing, much more than one origin source. And I think what's interesting to do is to consider the totality, but also to look for patterns within the, the overarching data and look for times where perhaps there have been specific historical moves amongst one contingent of what we call the phenomenon colloquially. So I think... For instance, with the, the data that John Mack gathered in the 90s to do with the experiencer literature, the adductees, part of the hybridization program, there was a very specific uh, intent and endeavor there that had a certain methodology it followed and seemed to be pursuing a certain kind of program. That might be very different than fairies from fairy lore. Right? It might be a very different group altogether. People like Jacques Vallée, again, don't want to beat on Jacques because I love Jacques, but one thing I will say is Sometimes people read Passport to Magonia and they go, oh, yeah, these are just the same beings across time. We just contextualize them differently based on our cultural, cultural milieu and whatnot. I think that's part of it, but I'm not convinced that fairies and elves are gray aliens or future humans or whatever you want to call them. I know that my friend Stuart Davis once suggested this idea to me, and I thought it was a great point. He said that imagine that you have kind of a crocodile, crocodile come into a bay. And then a thousand years later, you have a canoe being rowed by someone come into the bay. And then 3000 years later, you have a nuclear submarine come into the bay. You could make the argument, ah, this is the same phenomenon, 
manifesting with different guises, right? Or you could just say, no, it's three different entities, different origin sources altogether. So I think we have to be careful not to conflate and collapse because we have this tendency as a culture to reduce to simplicity all the time. I think it's complex. I think there is something happening to answer Leo's question. There is something happened historically. I think that I know experiencers who were part of the abduction phenomenon in the 90s who didn't hear anything from the others for 20 years, basically. And it's kicked up again the last couple of years, really, really intensely. And that the messages coming through are that what's happening now in our world is directly connected to what was happening in that program. And that the concerns they had about the way that we were treating the earth and whatnot that were voiced in the 90s, even to the kids uh, in Zimbabwe, is only a thousand times worse now. And so this sense of, I even recently read about some of these kids that are now adults will say, sure enough, the things they predicted and warned us about, we have gone further along that trajectory. And so I think that is actually something that is happening in modernity in our time. That's a unique pattern within the overarching pattern. And I just think, again, we want to stay open-minded. We want to not conflate and collapse the data because I think there's many things going on. And I, I just want to say before Nathan goes, I agree with you on the multiple source hypothesis of different phenomenon reacting with different people, different agendas. Uh, when I say I try to, you know, dumb it down, I meant that one, <laughs> that one hypothesis about future humans. You know, if there's somebody like me out there, uh, if they, they hear Michael say, you know, extra tempestrial and they're like, oh, you know, so I, I just try to break it down that way. You know, it seems like they, they want our DNA, but I agree with you in the multi-source. Uh, that, that's how I felt as well. Can't try to pin this down because you're probably going to be wrong. Um, Nathan, sir. Yeah, I mean, the irony is not lost on me that we are having a virtual conversation around a virtual fire. And you can you can easily it's imagine it's not real. Those who aren't seeing what we're seeing, and you're just listening. We have a a fire that's on the on the screen with us here but this is something that humans have done for a very long time with real a real fire at night as this as the sun goes down and we're looking at, at the heavens above we are sharing ideas and theories and, and experiences that we've had as we've gone out into the wider world and we've come back we've 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 coalesced around that fire uh to to share those stories and to broaden our understanding of what the world is and so I think that it's interesting. We're just, we're kind of, we're doing this now. It's, it's exciting. I would also say that, uh, you know, I'm going to use a kind of a crude analogy. And Darren and I talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, that as, as the information density gets, uh, thicker, writ, writ richer, uh, ever present, uh, you know, think, think of it as, uh, a, a whirlpool. And if you've ever, you know, when you were a kid, maybe you, you took a bath and you know, should drain the water out of the bathtub. You kind of watch as the water just sort of spirals down the drain and, and, and it, it forms this cool funnel, right? Uh, as the water, you know, get, gets close to the center of that funnel, it, it, it cycles around faster and faster and faster and faster. If you were to go into the experience of a water droplet that, that went from the outer rim of the funnel to the inner rim of the funnel as it's going down that, that singular drain, its experience is changing. On the outer rim, it's a very slow experience. I'm looking at this bathtub and not much is changing and everything is kind of moving along. And then over time, it gets a little bit faster. I'm getting more information coming at me faster and faster and faster as I get close to this density of information this singularity, if you will, 
my my viewpoint, my my experience is rapidly changing, so that it feels like, uh, you know, this isn't the same reality. Like it's all this crazy jumbled up mix, but it really is the same reality. It's just that our vantage point, our awareness of it, is now condensed in this way. And so I, I would argue that in some respects, that's kind of where we are, and that the the things that we are seeing and experiencing are indicative of that point in in this uh, sort of evolutionary trajectory or experiential trajectory, whichever terminology you may, you may want to use there. This is what it would look like uh, as we get close to that to that that point of convergence. Yeah, look at that! Drop that microphone, baby. Stuck the microphone. <laughs> Woo! Great question, Prime Time. Uh, obviously, very thought provoking. Uh, we expect no less from you. Um, and what did this gentleman say here? Yes, all earthly material, I believe phenomena is coming from different realms. Uh, yeah, so we believe, brother. DJ, uh, I'm, uh, I'm cognizant of the time. I would wonder if yes, we, we, we can try to, you sure. know, maybe just do a, a quick roundabout and, uh, Let's and do it. close it out. So I okay. would like, you know, I don't want to interrupt you, but I know we're getting close to the nope. two-hour mark here. So. No, I mean, uh, my, my, my question for you guys was, was real simple. I think everybody can answer this very quickly. And uh, we could start. It kind of leans into some stuff that you've said and 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 Debs have talked about. And and you know, Grush alluded to it. Darren alluded to it tonight. Is that possible contact event that uh, that's coming? And that's one of the reasons that he said he did this among the illeg illegality, the immorality, and then the not stated, but is in the IG complaint about the uh, ill uh, the uh, coercion. Uh, harassment, intimidation, these types of things that we, we didn't get to hear him say, but they're reportedly part of the complaint. However, um, what my question is, is if that contact event happens, um, at least four of a, five of us on the screen, if not six now with, with Meredith taking this topic on, in, on her show on, you know, seven or eight occasions now, um, and you go out in your neighborhood and there is that craft that is hovering above and people are exiting their houses and in your case, their cabins, XO. Um, it, and they're, you know, looking, they're going to look for answers. People are going to be frantic. So my question to you, Debs, is what do you say to those people? Because you're going to, you know, be a subject matter expert among that group some if there is such a thing but you know what i mean and where to start i mean uh if what do you if say I'm to people at, well that's what i i have to think about right i haven't actually thought about <laughs> that ahead of time but what i would say honestly the first thing that came to mind was light sound frequency like that to me is so important <laughs> and like i think it's as I soon as I know. I can't help it. I feel like, okay, we just need to get you caught up on some technology here. We need to get you caught. Like, go calm down. It's okay. And honestly, I think the biggest mistake that was ever done with this topic is to not normalize it. And I think that if we overreact and it will make people freak out, but if we go, oh yeah, well, that's nature, you know, like, let's normalize it. Let's look at the science. Let's look at the history. Let's get you caught up. Um, I think people will be able to adapt like we adapt to things that are, you know, really bizarre all the time. Um, we like I was thinking when we were talking about future humans, how we look at stars that have been dead for how many years, you know, like and we just normalize that they're 
dead things in the sky that we just look at all the time that are from the past. You know, so I think we just need to normalize it for them so they don't freak out. I was I was picturing you running underneath doing the hands out to the side, kind of a Travis Walton waiting for the beam, the tractor beam to come down. But that's OK. Anyway, let's make this a quick hitter. Meredith, uh, this happens <laughs> in your neighborhood. What are you what do you say? I shamelessly promote calling all beings because surely we will interview one of the aliens. Obviously. Oh, my God. Oh, thank Checks you. In the mail. Tune in, everyone. Tune in. That's what I would say. I appreciate the next week. Uh, this great <laughs> reptilian on calling all beings. Darren, what do you say? Well, I think Nathan and I addressed this recently. The fact that those of us intimately familiar with this and Meredith might have more of a feeling of what it's like to try to incorporate so much of this so quickly. But many of us who've been years at this, at least since the 2017 revelations, for instance, We've had a lot of time to internalize and metabolize this. And we sometimes, I think, have to stop ourselves and think back about the process and how I mentioned how we kind of go through different phases of actually being able to normalize this and metabolize this. And you kind of have to go through each step. You can't leap ahead. You can't go to your neighbor and say, actually, ultra terrestrial. And they're like, what? What is that? What even is that? You know, and, and why not space aliens? You know, like there, there's so many steps in the process in the data that suggests this rather than that. And maybe it's many things. Again, I think what will be ontologically shocking and discombobulating to people twice, that's good, <laughs> um, is that, uh, that it's not just one more thing added to our understanding of reality. It's a complete rewrite. It's like ripping the rug out from underneath them. So it's going to be a lot to metabolize. It's going to be an incredibly, it's going to be an event like no other in the history of the world. And I think to a large extent, many of the others have known that. And that's why they've kind of been slow. This is kind of like a slow boil thing of slowly introducing people to these notions over time. There's been more and more telepathic communication amongst the world. I think whenever we have experiencers glean certain notions about this, it becomes part of the collective unconscious we all can draw from. So somehow, even if we're not always conscious of it, we are normalized to this so that when it finally does happen, we can we can grapple with it and we can grok it. But I think we just need to remember that when we go speak to our neighbors, they're starting at level one, not level seven. And we have to talk to them the way that they can understand. Nathan, you, you walk outside the house. The craft is there. Your neighbors are looking up. They're freaking out. What do you say? Be present, right? I think I say, you know, just be present to the experience. Um, like a child, right? Uh, everything that happens in the child's life, it, you know, when it's very little is, is new and fresh, but it, you don't see the child, you know, recoiling in fear at the world around it. It's just sort of kind of waiting for an interpretation. It's waiting for uh, its, its mother or father or caregiver to to say it's okay uh, and to normalize whatever that is. So in, in some respects, that's kind of what Deb is hinting at there, but I, I would encourage a childlike interaction there. Um, but also I think it's important and, and Darren touched on this uh, quite a bit. Several of us have that we, you, you know, it's important to uh, use discernment as well. Right. I think, I think there's a part of us, a deep layer of us that, that is connected to, to this. Uh, and, and we intuitively understand that and know that. And so I think listen to that part um, because it's, it's the part of us that, that, that isn't uh, constrained by the way we are taught that things are true or real in the world now. 
And uh, it's that quiet voice that we do listen to many times uh, to make big decisions uh, in our lives, you know, who, who our partner is or, or, or you know, what, what, what career we might, might pursue. Uh, so I think kind of listen into that and, and discern uh, what is going on in that space and you'll be, you'll be okay. I love it. Uh, Primetime, you've just exited the ski lift. You flipped your hair back. You haven't yet gone to the uh, triple diamond, black diamond slope, uh, and headed down, so you're still sort of atop the mountain. The craft is hovering above uh, the exit of the ski lift. What do you say to people? Um, you know, uh, I would say very similar to Nathan, to remain open-minded and also to be deeply skeptical and thoughtful about believing anyone who thinks they have the answers. Fair, fair enough. That would be it. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking a lot more in the moment than how you guys answered that. You guys answered it in a sort of philosophical way. I was thinking what you actually would say if this happened, and it was I mean, more. And I, I've been more, shouting at the flying saucer, just like, take me away. Let's go. <laughs> and dad would be trying to shove you out of the way. Uh, but no, I, I was like, does it cover it? I got a lift ticket. Does that mean I get to go? I would right. not right. chub anybody. I've already offered to go pick everybody up when I get one. <laughs> uh, thank you, Debs. I'm just kidding. No, I, I mean, I, I think it'd be, I would be honestly just trying to, I would probably be as terrified as everybody else there, but just trying to say, stay calm and, you know, that kind of thing, trying to calm people down and, and just act like, you know, I, I was really calm about it, but certainly I would be terrified and, and just, you know, getting people to understand that not necessarily something negative is going to happen just because they're here. Um, and if I could add one really fast thing is that, is that we can actually prepare ourselves. We can meditate on that moment and how you'd respond. You don't have to wait for the day it happens. And I would actually encourage Perfect. people to meditate on that because you'll be much better equipped when it actually happens. I, I will. I'll do that myself. Thank you for saying that. Let's go with uh, Cabby Goodbye, starting with uh, Meredith, please. Cabby Goodbye. What is Cabby Goodbye? So Cabby Goodbye <laughs> is basically where you say goodbye to Darren, uh, and then we'll go around. All of us will say goodbye and, and basically thank Darren for joining us this evening. Ah, yes. Thank you, Darren. It was truly a pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed cyber stalking you, and I can tell you, you did not disappoint. Thank you. That's good to know. These are things I really worry about. So thank you. <laughs> I love it. Prime time. <laughs> um, yeah, look, this was a pleasure. Um, I was introduced to your work back in October at the New York event um, and have been a big fan ever since. Um, really appreciate the time sitting down to talk to you. Um, it's a lovely conversation. Thanks, Darren. Thank you. Debs. I just want to thank you for helping us with ontological shock and being discombobulated. We appreciate it so much. <laughs> Liminally. Uh, your Incredible. brother, Nate. <laughs> yes, just uh, Nathan, before you go, we had interdisciplinary. We had metabolized multiple times by multiple people, extratempestrial, ultraterrestrial, and non-corporeal. So this was an amazing and discombobulated. So this was. Let this us not forget multi-perspectival. That's got to be multi-perspectival. <laughs> oh my gosh! Incredible. This is 
is awesome. And primetime, you know, I feel like we're colleagues, but man, when you put the glasses, you know, like we're on the same intellectual level, then when you put the glasses on, man, you're way, it's like my way above me. Right? I'm like down here looking up. Uh, anyway, go ahead, Nathan. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Darren, it's been great. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate the work that you do and uh, your willingness to come on our show and have this conversation. I think it's a, a sort of side of your commentary that folks don't necessarily get to hear. Uh, I think it's added some real value and uh, we look forward to having you back again in the future. So thanks. I would just like to say that uh, speaking of spawn, if it were not for a calling of be all beings, liminal frames would not exist. Correct. I mean, it's because I met Nathan on this show early on when you guys were still talking about MBA and MMA or something. That's right. right? We actually right. spawned cool. this idea of liminal frame. So thank you for that. We are we are happy grandchildren. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know what I was going to change the name to. I knew I was going UFOs and I was putting MMA and MBA and other stuff aside. And so once Nathan joined up, he's the one who came up with this incredible name. Uh, we actually had a whole election night built around this. It was really funny. We had two names, and Nathan's was far and away the best one. Um, and it's it's man, it it really does fit. You know, just that's why I call him money. You know, when he comes up with this, and I I I sorry that we waited so long to have you on because you're just you've shown just how much fun you are uh, tonight, Darren. And thank you so much. It is an honor to speak with you. I know Nathan and you you know, speak all the time and get to have coffee because you guys live near one another. I'd love to hear that that keg party happens with uh, Pasolka, you, Micah Hanks, uh, and like I said, me, maybe even Chris Bledsoe will come up. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I, I thank you. I look forward to uh, speaking with you again. Um, so on behalf of uh, Meredith and Leah, Debs, Money Nathan, this is DJ saying peace out, one love. We'll see you down the road, and as always, we're wondering what's up around the bend. <laughs>